I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another brand new full-length episode of Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. I am so excited to share this episode with all of you. So I'm going to share all of my news and my spiel and everything for the end of the episode because I just can't wait. If you've listened to more than two episodes of this show, I'm sure you are very well aware that I was a figure skater for a very, very long time, and I competed in figure skating for about seven or eight years or so, and that was pretty much my entire childhood, my entire life, my entire identity for my entire childhood, and I am still completely obsessed with figure skating. And because it is a female-dominated sport, there's a lot of issues within the sport, and it's something that I pay attention to. It's something that I really, really love discussing on this show. I'm sure for some of you, you're looking at the title of this episode and you're like, what does this have to do with feminism? But just stay with me. Let's get through this story and then tell me at the end if you disagree with me that this is not an important story for us to know. Growing up as a competitive figure skater, no name could grab more fear, disgust, and controversy than Tanya Harding. I was born in 1992 and I got my first pair of skates when I was three, so 1995. By the age of seven, which was about 1999, I had gotten a private coach and I did my first skating competition in May of 2000. Now, just six years before, figure skating had been in the national and international spotlight, but it wasn't for the fantastic stars on ice shows or amazing new records recorded in competition, but for a crime. 
All images of the Tanya-Nancy story created a narrative in my head, and in the heads of most young skaters in the 90s and 2000s, of the innocent Nancy Kerrigan being attacked by the trashy and hardened Tanya Harding, who would do anything to come out on top and win. I'm not even sure if I knew it wasn't Tanya herself who perpetrated the attack. I always had this image of Tanya with a bat in her hand, just bashing Nancy's knee in the hallway. It didn't matter, though. I thought Tanya and the idea of her was terrifying. She was like the boogeyman. I also had a hard time understanding the kind of vindictiveness between competitors that was seen between Tanya and Nancy, or at least the story that was being told to me, as I had a pretty opposite experience growing up. I always wanted to make friends with everyone I met at competitions. I would even get scolded by my coach for asking the small group of girls packed around me waiting for our six-minute warm-ups to be announced, asking, What's your name? Even as I got older and competition heated up, some of my best friends were my biggest competition. Of course, I wanted to beat them, but I also wanted them to succeed as well. And being close to someone who challenged me made me a better skater. That's the typical vibe amongst the world of competitive skating, in my experience. I'm sure there's some underhanded shit that happens, but again, in my experience, it was usually the parents, the coaches, or the judges, not the children and competitors who would be at the helm of the drama. So to hear of a rivalry that would go this far made for a pretty great story for us skaters growing up, and we would often make jokes about pulling a Tanya on someone. This story has been told time and time again through the years, and in that time, the narrative has shifted, and more and more of the story has been revealed. Today, I'm going to tell you about the anti-hero of figure skating and one of the most controversial sports figures in history, Tanya Harding. Since the beginning of the sport of figure skating, there's been a certain look and behavior that skaters are expected to have in order to be successful. As I've spoken about many times in past episodes surrounding my favorite sport and passion, figure skating, that there is a history of extreme racism in the sport, but the discrimination also branches out into other things like class, size, and so on. And it all goes back to the woman who is seen as being the trailblazer of the sport, Sonia Henney. Sonia Henney and the perfect ice princess looks a little bit like this. The ice princess is white and has a figure similar to that of a ballerina, which means they're thin but still strong. Though too many visible muscles is a no-no, and bulky muscles are not the ideal and you want to be as light as possible to fly through the air. Hence why eating disorders are fucking rampant in the sport. Skaters want to be as small and weightless as possible in order to get themselves into the air and achieve more rotations in their jumps. Though I would have to argue, now as an adult, that I would rather have a muscular skater with strength and speed behind them, which would give them more power in their jumps. But that's not the look the judges and coaches and other skaters have wanted since the dawn of the sport. Figure skating is also really fucking expensive. As I've spoken on in episodes regarding black skaters through history like Debbie Thomas and Mabel Fairbanks, so unless you're middle class and above, good luck making it very far in this sport. The Ice Princess is the American girl next door with a little bit of glamour. These are all things that are important to remember when I get into the life and experiences of Tanya Harding. Tanya said in the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary that I watched in preparation for this episode, and I think this might be my third time watching it total, quote, I was never interested in being an ice princess. I was the strong, buff, you know, woman. And womanhood is a whole other problem for skaters. Breasts and hips and a booty may as well be a death sentence, as I was taught growing up. 
When she said this, I wanted to stand up and give a round of applause because that's exactly right. (laughs) I was terrified of womanhood growing up because I too was literally told that a butt and breasts were like a death sentence to the sport because that would add more weight to you and you wouldn't be able to get yourself up off the ice and also when your body changes your whole center of gravity and everything changes so skaters often have to kind of like retrain their bodies to do the jumps all over again with a new body essentially. In just about every documentary or news article that you'll read or see about Tanya Harding, they love to say that she was from the wrong side of the tracks. She was born Tanya Maxine Harding on November 12, 1970. She's totally a Scorpio in Portland, Oregon. Her dad was Albert Harding, born in 1933, and he struggled throughout his life to hold down a job, leaving the breadwinning to Tanya's mother, Lavanya Golden, And personally, I think that Tanya should have taken her mother's last name when going pro in figure skating because Tanya Golden, come on. And though Lavanya was the breadwinner for the family, she only worked as a waitress. So the Harding family was definitely in extreme poverty. Also, I have no idea if it's Lavana or Lavanya. I always say Lavanya and I don't know why, but I'm going to try to say Lavana because I think that's correct. Oftentimes, Tanya had to go out and skate without any food in her stomach, and she also skated not knowing if her next lesson was ever going to come or not. During her childhood, the family bounced around all over the place, and Tanya says it was really hard growing up, but she had one thing that she held on to, figure skating. She called it her sanctuary, which really hits me in the heart because that's what the rink was always for me, too. It was just really hard growing up. My skating was definitely my sanctuary. Touch the door, leave your problems behind, go in and just skate. And much like myself, Tanya started skating at the age of three. And she was the cutest little blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl. And from day one, she was really good. She just had natural talent. Her coach, Diane Rollinson, in an interview with what was most likely a local news station when Tanya was only six years old, described her as being mature beyond her years and very driven and determined. Diane gave her extra time because she realized the talent this little girl had, even if she couldn't afford that extra time. I think Diane was smart enough to know how important skating was for the survival of this little girl. And I want to say just a couple of things here because I feel like I was one of those kids who knew what they loved right away and also happened to be pretty good at it, though I was nowhere near the level of Tanya and being a prodigy by any means. But I always felt really lucky to have that kind of direction in my life where I felt like I knew what I wanted and I knew where I belonged. I also resonate with Tanya when she talks about not having many friends in her life, but how that didn't matter because she had skating. And I really struggled with friendships at school growing up, but that didn't matter because I knew at some point during the day I would be at the rink with my coach who I loved and all of my skating friends who I felt really saw me for who I was. I also always felt really respected as a child athlete, like I had something important to do or say. I was given a lot of freedom with my costumes and choreography, even from a really young age, and I liked the responsibility that the sport gave me. If I worked hard, it would pay off and I could reap the rewards. There was nothing like landing a jump for the first time after attempting and failing at it a hundred times before. And I can also attest to the importance of having a coach like Diane growing up. I had two coaches, Maria and then Miss Kim. 
who were both very loving and encouraging of me, especially Kim, who I still look up to and I'm very close to to this day, though it helps that my mom is dating her dad. A coach gets to know their skaters very differently than parents and friends do. They see things differently than a child's skating friends who are too young to notice things like Tanya's poverty and issues in her family. But Diane, being an adult, was able to see how Tanya was struggling, and as an authority in her life, could take it upon herself to help guide her and show her the love she so desperately needed. But sometimes even the ice was not a safe space for Tanya. In an article from the Chicago Tribune in 1994, a woman who had taken lessons with Tanya as a child told reporters that Tanya was never let off the ice during practice, even if she had to use the bathroom, which meant that she would have to relieve herself right there on the ice. In 1994, one of Tanya's childhood skating friends, Anja Spethman, told a horrifying story of abuse that occurred at a skating competition. And the story was told again in the Price of Gold documentary by another friend, Sandra Lucknow, who corroborated it. The story takes place in the bathroom at a skating competition. Just that sentence sends chills down my spine because goddammit, skating moms are fucking vicious. This friend, in a stall, heard Tanya and her mom come into the bathroom, and the two began to bicker about something or another. According to the pal, Mrs. Harding lost her temper and began to repeatedly whack Tanya with a hairbrush. Her friend, who I'm sure was terrified of Lavana at this moment, stayed frozen in the stall, watching it all unfold. I've been this friend before, seeing, hearing, or knowing about abuse being perpetrated onto a friend, and it's a lot for a kid to handle. It's way too much. But this friend knew more than I did. She went straight to Diane, Tanya's coach, after witnessing the abuse, and she told Diane that she was going to call Child Protective Services on Lavana. Diane told the girl that she couldn't do that because if she did, she would be taking away Tanya's opportunity to skate. Now, this is where I disagree with Diane. I think in the long run, it would have been more important to get Tanya into a safe home than it was for her to be able to skate. Hopefully, she could have gotten back to the rink eventually, and I know that the foster system and all of that is not great, but I think for Tanya's well-being, she really did deserve to be in a loving home. This abuse in her childhood would set her up for any relationship she would have in the future, and maybe if she would have gotten out as a child and gotten some help in therapy, her story wouldn't have played out like it did. Lavana also made Tanya go to school in her skating costumes, with her hair done up like she was ready to compete. This is even worse than when my mom posted a photo of me on the first place podium at state on my school's bulletin board. Talk about embarrassing. When Tanya went to nationals for the first time at the age of 15, the same childhood friend that wanted to call CPS decided to tag along and make a little documentary about Tanya's experience. Here's a clip of Tanya talking about her relationship with her mom in the documentary, followed by Lavana talking about her opinion of Tanya. My relationship with my mom is really bad. She is not, I mean, she's a good mother, but she's not a good mother. She hits me and she beats me and she drinks. My mom's an alcoholic. Tanya is basically, I mean, eats, lives, breathes, sleeps because she wants skating. And the bigger the you can't do it, the better and the best she'll do it. If there's no you can't do it type thing, she won't do it. 
Okay, and I have to say, since this isn't a visual medium and you may have heard some squawking in the clip with her mom, that is because she has a little green parakeet sitting directly on her shoulder the entire interview. And on those shoulders, Lavana is wearing a big fur coat. It is quite an image. And Tanya was a go-getter. She thrived off of people telling her that she couldn't do something, which would absolutely obliterate me, but she used it as fuel to prove the haters wrong. At the 1986 Nationals, she skated fairly well, but made a few mistakes and ended up in sixth place. In a call with her mom, which was recorded by this friend making the little documentary, we hear Tanya trying to convince her mom that sixth place at her first appearance at Nationals is actually quite good. But it was clear that her mother was disappointed with her daughter for her performance on the other end of the line. Hi, Mom. Um, I got six. Yeah, overall. Yeah. No, that's good, because now I get my international. And I could go to sports festival and everything. No, I did it, but I did a loop in beside. I know. Yes, it does. It, I got half credit for it, Mom. My favorite part of this interaction is when Tanya's hanging up the phone. She mutters to herself, what a bitch. But then quickly brings the receiver back up to her ear to make sure her mother wasn't still on the other line. Okay, let me do. Bye. What a bitch. Tanya said that her mom told her she was terrible and that she sucked. Her mom called her fat and ugly and said she wouldn't amount to anything more than she was, a waitress. I think Lavana was just jealous of her daughter. And Tanya was determined to be better than her mother. After that, she slowly began to climb the icy ladder to success. She placed fifth at Senior Nationals in 1987 and again in 1988. She won Skate America, which is an international competition, in 1989 and was considered one of the strongest contenders for nationals that year. But due to the flu, she had a rough skate and finished third. But it was still her best placement at nationals yet. But the world of figure skating did not welcome this new champion with open arms. Tanya called herself Daddy's Little Girl, and she liked to hunt and fish and do things that boys like to do. She was what they would call at the time a tomboy, very different than what you would expect of a young female figure skater. She was caught between two worlds, one in which she was tough and had to fend for herself and liked to do things that demonstrated her strength and abilities, and another where she was expected to be light and delicate and feminine. But she didn't want to be that kind of figure skater. She wanted to be an athlete. Watching videos of her struggle in ballet reminds me of some of my friends growing up who were much like Tanya, who didn't have the quote-unquote build or grace, and how they always did seem to stick out a little bit. I had one friend who also played hockey along with figure skating, and that was super obvious. And there's also another girl that I grew up with who seriously is like the reincarnation of Tanya's figure skating. She was so fast and powerful, her jumps were huge, but... She did not have grace to save her life. And Tanya was very much the same. I totally understand Tanya when she tells the documentary cameras that she always wanted to focus more on the elements, the jumps and stuff, rather than everything in between. Even though she wasn't super graceful, she had great technique. Though she was a little jumpy on her crossovers and could skate a bit stiff, it didn't matter. Her jumps were as big as the male skaters. 
Tanya's look was also a little bit jarring to the judges of the figure skating world. She liked to wear blue nail polish and wear brightly colored dresses that she made herself. And she liked to skate to music from artists like ZZ Top and other rock stars, which did not fit the mold of U.S. figure skating. Though she would fit in perfectly now, so I would say that Tanya was just ahead of her time. But as she was slowly climbing the ranks in her career, her personal life was not going as smoothly as her time on the ice. In 1986, when Tanya was 15 years old, she met 17-year-old Jeff Galuli at the Clackamas Town Center Ice Arena where she was training. They later exchanged phone numbers and went to the movies, chaperoned by Tanya's dad. But before the date that night, it was revealed in her memoir that Tanya's 26-year-old half-brother Chris Davidson, whom she calls Creepy Chris, sexually assaulted her in her home. Tanya said that he tried to kiss her when she was getting ready for her date, and she threatened to burn him with her curling iron if he tried it again. But when he continued to force himself on her, she set the curling iron on the front of his neck before running to the upstairs bathroom and locking the door. Chris followed her, and he eventually beat down the door, but Tanya had thankfully gotten out and was able to call the police. However, Chris was still pursuing her, so she hit him with a hockey stick and ran to a neighbor's home. Chris was later arrested and would eventually spend several years in jail, but not for this incident. Tanya's mother doesn't seem to have much sympathy for the situation, saying, I wouldn't put it past Chris to try and get a kiss. Tanya has a vivid imagination. She has a tendency to tell tales. This is so cruel, and I feel like it happens far too often when children come to their parents with stories of sexual assault and they're not believed. I just feel like Tanya was just not taken seriously by anyone in her life from the very, very start. And I can't believe that she still went out on this date with Jeff that night. If this story is correct, oh my gosh. Jeff, like Tanya, was not perceived to be part of the right crowd. Though there isn't a lot of information about Jeff out there, by all accounts, he seems not so smart and oh so very violent. Tanya, who was now very well used to the abuses handed to her by her mother and father, was now in the hands of yet another abuser. However, Jeff may still have seemed like a better option than Lavana, so the two moved in together in 1988 while Tanya skated and Jeff worked at the Oregon Liquor Commission to get by. All of this was happening as Tanya was training for nationals, held in February 1990, where she had a lackluster performance and placed 7th. Jeff and Tanya married a month later on March 18, 1990. Tanya was only 19 years old and Jeff was 22. Lavana, according to her, disapproved of the marriage, saying, I knew Jeff had a violent streak. He tried to break down the door because he thought Tanya had gone out with another boy. And the marriage almost didn't last long as Tanya first filed for divorce in June 1991, citing irreconcilable differences. She also received a restraining order against Jeff two days later. The order read that Jeff had wrenched Tanya's arm and wrist, pulled her hair, and shoved her. She also alleged that he had purchased a shotgun and that she was scared for her safety. Tanya also came out with a story of acquaintance rape, which occurred sometime during her separation from Jeff in 1991. And you all know as soon as I read acquaintance rape, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What the fuck is that? And apparently it's like the same as date rape, which I still think is bullshit because it makes it seem less violent and less of an attack. Rape is rape. It doesn't matter who does it to you. 
but Wikipedia refers to acquaintance rape as a rape that is perpetrated by a person who knows the victim. So most of them. Tanya said the attack was perpetrated by a friend of hers who she had known for about eight years. That summer, she got engaged to a mechanical engineer named Mike Pliska, but after he caught Tanya giving her phone number to another man, he called it off. She also briefly dated a Canadian banker in early fall, but by October of 1991, Jeff and Tanya had reconciled. They withdrew the divorce, saying they were still madly in love and seeking counseling. Tanya said, I know he's changed. I see it in his eyes, and I believe him. I don't want to lose him. I really don't. Well, I mean, if you see it in his eyes. Tanya told Terry Richard of the Oregonian in 1992, Jeff always puts food on the table and a roof over my head. He paid for my skating for a couple of years. If it hadn't been for him during that time, I wouldn't have been skating. So clearly she feels that she owes a lot to this man. But no matter how well Tanya skated or how good of a wife she tried to be, Jeff would continuously beat her. In The Price of Gold, Tanya says, He hit me, but she, Lavana, hit me, but they loved me. We see this so often when it comes to the victims of abuse. Abusers are so good at reconciling with their victims after the fact by apologizing or love bombing them, giving them something nice, doing something to get back into their good graces. And then things might be fine for a little while, but the abuse and the violence always comes back. But for someone who's been abused her entire life, Abuse by someone you love could also be seen as very normal and something that she just had to live with, which is just so devastating to me and why I really wish that people had gotten involved in Tanya's life when she was a child in helping her get out of this situation. Jeff will claim that they were both violent and that Tanya once came after him with a shotgun. But if we were to believe the movie I, Tanya, he was no angel. There's a scene which depicts Jeff, played by Sebastian Stan, slamming Tanya's face, played by Margot Robbie, into a mirror. In another scene, Jeff punched her in the nose. Jeff has always denied abusing Tanya, but I, for one, have to side with her on this one. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hello, my name is Alison Larkin. And I'm a writer, comedian, and narrator and host of the Jane Austen podcast. This podcast brings Jane Austen's stories to the 21st century, along with commentary from me and conversations with fascinating people who all share a love of Jane Austen. 
And of course, we have to start with none other than Pride and Prejudice. So join me as we embark on a journey through some of the most wonderful stories I know. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's move on to 1991. 1991 would be Tanya's year. At the U.S. Championships in 1991, held in none other than my hometown of Minneapolis, Minnesota, Tanya would dare to attempt what no other American woman would dare to do. She had a triple axel planned in her program. The axel, invented by Norwegian skater Axel Paulsen at the first ever international competition held in Vienna, Italy in 1882, is known as the most difficult jump in figure skating. A lot of people quit over not even getting their single axle. To this day, the triple axle is rare among female figure skaters. As of 2021, only 19 women in the history of the sport has successfully completed the jump in competition. That's not many. <laughs> the reason it's harder than any other triple is twofold, in my opinion. One, it's the only jump in which you take off going forward, which always kind of creeped me out. And because of that, number two, you have to complete an extra half rotation in order to land backwards. The axle is an edge jump, meaning you can't use your toe pick to help launch you into the air, meaning you can't use your toe pick to help launch you into the air, and you face forward on one foot on an outside edge, propel yourself into the air, turn however many times plus a half, and land on your backward edge on the opposite foot. The first woman ever to complete a triple axel in competition was Japan's Midori Ito, who landed the jump at the 1988 NHK Trophy. Tanya was going to try to become the second and the first ever American. I'm going to play a little clip from this program. It is so unbelievable to even just listen to. And I highly recommend going to YouTube and watching this clip online because it is so moving. Now the question is whether she will become the first American to attempt and complete a triple axle jump. We will know that here, whether she tries it or not. Good girl! Oh, isn't that great? The first time an American, only Midori Ito, has completed a triple axle in competition. Oh, how nice! How terrific! If you watch that clip and you are not crying, I don't think we can be friends. I literally get chills and tear up every single time I see that because I can't imagine the level of happiness that she must have been feeling, that level of accomplishment. Like, oh my God, it's amazing. And when Tanya describes that moment, even years later in the documentary, even her eyes are filling with tears of happiness. No one can ever take that moment away from her. Tanya did what no American woman would even think to attempt at the time. And not only did Tanya win the whole damn thing, she became the first person since Janet Lynn in 1973 to receive a perfect 6.0 score from the judges. Next to her on the podium was Christy Yamaguchi in second place and Nancy Kerrigan in third. The next month, March of 1991, following another successful triple axel attempt, Tanya was victorious over Kerrigan once again, getting silver at Worlds to Kerrigan's bronze. 
She also recorded three more firsts at this competition, becoming the first woman to complete a triple axle in the short program, the first woman to successfully execute two triple axles in a single competition, and the first ever to complete a triple axle in a combination, which she added a double loop. However, after these two amazing competitions for Tanya, she would never again successfully complete a triple axle in competition. That's just how it goes in figure skating. In 1992, Tanya placed third at nationals, despite twisting her ankle in practice, and finished fourth at the 1992 Winter Olympics, just missing the podium. She placed sixth at the 1992 Worlds and finished in fourth at the 1992 Skate Canada International Competition. At the 1992 Nationals, the podium had Christy Yamaguchi in first, Nancy in second, and Tanya in third. In 1993, at Nationals, Nancy won gold, and Tanya, now Tanya Harding-Galuli, landed in fourth. Further down the list was a child Michelle Kwan in sixth place. Also in 1992, on March 10th, outside of the ice rink, Tanya got into a physical altercation on the side of the road with another female motorist in Portland, where officers on the scene witnessed Tanya brandishing a baseball bat and breaking the other woman's glasses. The incident ended in apologies and no criminal charges were filed. Back on the ice in January of 1993, Tanya placed fourth again at U.S. Nationals. She just couldn't make it to the top again. Let's take a brief skating break and get back to her relationship with Jeff, because as I mentioned, she is now Tanya Harding Giluli. In March and July of 1993, police came to their shared apartment after reported arguments. Tanya released an affidavit in July of 1993 stating that Jeff had been abusing her for the past two years, saying, quote, He has assaulted me physically with his open hand and fist, put me down to the floor on several occasions. She tried to leave Jeff again and dated another man for a bit, but she just couldn't stop talking about Jeff. Nevertheless, the couple was granted their divorce on August 28, 1993. And Tanya going back to Jeff and leaving again over and over and over again is really common in an abusive relationship. On average, it takes a woman about seven attempts to leave an abusive relationship for good before successfully leaving. And it's important to remember that the most dangerous time to be in an abusive relationship is when you're leaving. So this is also why many people decide to stay and not risk their lives. Even though they were divorced, she was still going back to Jeff. On October 2nd, 1993, at approximately 3 a.m., neighbors of the couple called 911 after they heard them arguing, along with hearing a single gunshot. The neighbors then spotted Jeff picking up Tanya and placing her in his truck, and they were worried that he had shot her. An officer stopped Jeff in his truck and confiscated his 9mm Beretta pistol and shotgun in the car. The pistol had obviously been recently discharged. When the officers interviewed the couple separately, their stories did not match. Jeff said the gun had gone off accidentally when he was trying to carry it, and Tanya claimed to have fired the gun herself, but was worried about negative publicity. In the end, no charges were pressed. The two were evicted from their apartment in November of 1993 for failing to pay rent. And all during this time, Tanya was still vigorously training on and off the ice and winning skating competitions. This life would look very different from one of her major competitors, Nancy Kerrigan. Although both of their careers took off at about the same time, 
They were both exquisite athletes and at the top of their sport, but they were also entirely different from one another. Where Tanya was hard, Nancy was soft. Where Tanya was intense, Nancy was graceful. In The Price of Gold, Tanya says, She's a princess and I'm a piece of crap. And that's how skating treated them. But in all actuality, the two young women really weren't that different. Nancy was born in Stoneham, Massachusetts, and was the youngest child and only daughter of a welder, Daniel Kerrigan, and homemaker, Brenda. Her brothers, Michael and Mark, took up hockey, and Nancy took to figure skating when she was six years old. She started private lessons at eight and won her first competition at the age of nine. Her family was of modest means, with Daniel Kerrigan sometimes having to work three jobs to support his three kids. And having a child in competitive figure skating, like I mentioned, is not cheap. So to supplement the pay for ice time, Daniel Kerrigan would also drive the Zamboni at the ice rink in exchange for Nancy's lessons. I actually had a friend growing up whose dad would do this too. At the U.S. Junior Championships in 1987, at the U.S. Junior Championships in 1987, which is the same competition as senior nationals, but it's just in the junior level, which is, of course, right below senior, Tanya Harding placed fifth in the senior level and Nancy placed fourth in the junior level. Christy Yamaguchi had won the junior title. While doing research for this episode, I went to Wikipedia to look at all the different results from the past nationals and Olympics and so on and so forth. And I kept seeing my spin coach, Craig Heath, show up. And this year it shows that he won third in junior men's. Congratulations, Craig. (laughs) Tanya and Nancy first competed against each other at the 1988 nationals when Tanya got fifth to Nancy's 12th place. Even Christy Yamaguchi only got 10th in that competition, so something must have been weird. Both Nancy and Tanya had referred to each other as being friendly in the media before the attack, and even after the attack, before more information was known. Most accounts state that while the two weren't so close that they would confide in each other and bond, but they were professional acquaintances who would exchange pleasantries at competitions and have some conversation. In the movie I, Tanya, there's a clip that shows Nancy and Tanya hanging out in a hotel room together. While they very well could had to room together for competitions, this was never confirmed and doesn't seem likely. But nevertheless, figure skating is a small world and it gets smaller and smaller the higher level you reach. You've competed against the same girls for years, for most of your life. Even if you don't really know them, there is a form of camaraderie and understanding between skaters that's hard to find in outside friendships that I think brings these girls together. The biggest wedge in their relationship was entirely designed by U.S. figure skating and the media. Every sport loves their rivals, and figure skating is no different. There was the Battle of the Bryans at the 1988 Winter Olympics between the American Brian Boitano and the Canadian Brian Orser. Neither ended up winning, but Orser got silver while Boitano ended in fifth. Brian Boitano did, however, win the Olympics the following time. Then there was Debbie Thomas versus Katerina Witt, known as the Battle of the Carmens, since both ladies skated to the music of Bizet's opera, Carmen, which is now hailed as one of the most common skating music choices probably next to Swan Lake. I didn't do any research on this, but just trust me. Then there was Alexia Gudin versus Evgeny Plashenko, Michelle Kwan versus Tara Lipinski, and Evan Lysacek and Johnny Weir. It helps get more viewers to watch the competition, and it really raises the stakes when you create this kind of rivalry, but it can also create a lot of unnecessary drama. And a lot of the way that the media portrayed these two skaters was untrue. 
For some reason, the media chose to portray Nancy's modest upbringing turned skating success into an underdog story, and they also used it as a way to trash Tanya's upbringing. After Nancy won nationals in 1993, the sponsorship started flooding in, with companies like Campbell's Soup, Evian, Reebok, L'Oreal, and more. She even had her own Christmas special in 1992. She essentially became the face of U.S. figure skating. You may be wondering, hey, but Tanya got to the top first, and she had the triple axle. Where were her sponsorship deals? Well, let me tell you, dear listener, there were none. Tanya always thought, according to a friend, that skating would be her way out of the gutter. But U.S. figure skating wanted to keep her there. It seems like Nancy, not Tanya, had the look. Nancy was considered to be more beautiful and more sophisticated than Tanya. Or as a Boston Globe reporter, John Powers, puts it, Nancy looked like she was wealthy. On the other hand, Connie Chung described Tanya as a girl with frizzy blonde hair from the wrong side of the tracks. What a bitchy thing to say. Also, did you know that Connie Chung is married to You Are the Father, Maury Povich? I saw their performance styles compared. But still, Tanya believed that even though the figure skating world and the judges were clearly against her, if she skated well enough, and more specifically, if she won the Olympics, they would have to notice her and they would have to give her the respect and the accolades she deserves. Remember, all of this is now happening in the early 90s when companies viewed athletes in such a way that they believed an athlete's ability to make money for them hinged on their appearance as much as it does their physical ability. Nancy could profit off of her personality, which I would still argue is lacking, but I digress, and appearance. Though I'm going to take a shot in the dark here and say it's because she was pretty. Olympics.com even describes Nancy as beautiful, quiet, and classy. She didn't have to win the gold. Tanya had to work at it. This all leads up to the year of 1994. And Tanya believed that if she could snatch the gold medal at the Olympics that year, someone would have to ask her to endorse something. Nationals in 1994 was supposed to be a momentous occasion due to skaters Brian Boitano and Elaine Zayek returning to competitive skating. However, there would be a much more newsworthy event to occur at this competition. In December of 1993, Tanya finished fourth place at Worlds and Nationals. This was not what Tanya wanted the year before another Olympics. And she knew she had to work really hard to come back out on top in 94. And this was a very interesting time for the Olympics and for any sort of winter sports in the Olympics because... Up until 1994, the Summer and Winter Olympics were held in the same year. But then between 1992 and 1994, they decided to split up the Summer and Winter Olympic Games by two years. They would happen every two years, as they are now. So instead of having to wait another four years for the next Olympics, Tanya only had two years to wait. And in order to gain entry to the Olympics, skaters first have to qualify at nationals. Usually it's the top two skaters or so, depending on rank and how many skaters each country is allowed to send, that goes to the Olympic Games. But there have also been exceptions made where someone who doesn't place in a qualifying spot will take the place of someone who placed higher if their competitive history is more reliable in order to cinch a win for the country. I don't find this fair, but that's the way it is. At Nationals in 1994, they would be taking just the first and second place winners to the Olympics. So Tanya knew she had to be on top 
at nationals. In The Price of Gold, Tanya talks about how ready she felt leading up to the 1994 Olympics. The jumps were there. She had been working on her grace. She was 23 years old. She was ready. This takes us to January 4th, 1994 at the U.S. Championships in Detroit, Michigan. It already looked like this would be a hell of a competition, and the skating fans, along with the media, were ready to see the rivals, Tanya and Nancy, go head-to-head on the ice. In a press conference before the competition began, Nancy was asked by a reporter if she was nervous about going up against Tanya. Remember, this is before any sort of incident had occurred between the two ladies. Nancy replied, No, I've never been more ready in my life. After this press conference, some dope with a microphone approached Tanya outside the rink and they asked her about Nancy's comment saying that she was easy to beat, which, by the way, I could never find anywhere that Nancy said that. But good old Tanya replies, we'll see, wearing a grin. Then she and the unseen reporter man have a chuckle. This is all par for the course so far. Just a little friendly jabbing at one another. Then comes January 6th, 1994. Oof, what a date. And this is another reason why I'm talking about this episode today. Because the day that I am recording this episode is January 6th, 2024. And this event took place exactly 30 years ago today, or two days ago, if you're listening on Monday. So January 6th, 1994, the senior ladies were at a typical practice session at the rink before a competition. Little baby Michelle Kwan is skating around in a hot pink and turquoise frilly practice dress, something I would have for sure envied at the time. And Nancy is skating in a clean white lace dress. Tanya had a practice later that day and was allegedly still sleeping in bed. What's crazy about all of this is that there's a company called Intersport that recorded everything, even the practices, and you can watch Nancy coming off the ice, grabbing her guards, which protect your blades while you walk off ice, and walk away with her coaches, Mary and Evie Scottfold. Her coaches were a bit behind Nancy, and one of them recognized an old friend, so the coaching couple stopped to chat while Nancy continued to the dressing rooms, which were located just behind some curtains. As Evie recalls, just moments after Nancy went behind the curtain, they heard a yell. The cameras hurry around the commotion and make their way to a screaming Nancy. Just like Tanya's triple axle gives me chills and tears in a feel-good way, this audio gives me chills and tears in a devastated way. I've heard it so many times, and it never becomes less devastating or less difficult to listen to. She is screaming, why, why, why? Because this was her shot. This was her time. And now she wouldn't even be able to compete at nationals, and she wouldn't be able to qualify for the Olympics. To those of you who aren't skaters or athletes, maybe it would be hard to understand this devastation. But imagine working at something literally your entire life, since you were an actual child who had probably always held the dream of the Olympics with them, then seeing it all come crashing down in front of you. And it was done in such a terrifying way, and it happened so quickly. I'm sure she was in shock as well. 
You can hear people around her trying to understand what happened. Evie said that he looked up and saw a guy running away, so he started chasing after him. When the guy reached a locked glass door, he decided to crash through it and ran to the getaway car. Nancy is eventually carried away from the site of the attack by her father and taken to get medical attention. And that is where I am going to leave you all today. I apologize for leaving you all on yet another cliffhanger, but I've been kind of loving doing some research ahead of time and having two full weeks to do everything. But the downside is that these turn into two-parter episodes. But to any of my Patreon listeners, you are in luck because I am going to make part two of this episode available to all of my Patreon listeners, both on the $5 and $8 levels on Patreon. So if you simply cannot wait for part two of this episode for next Monday, it will be waiting for you at patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist. We're going to pick up next week on Tanya learning of the attack and what happens to both of these women's lives when they meet at the Olympics. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. Like I said, if you want to join Patreon, not only for that episode, but also for some other bonus content and to just further support the show, go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist or click the link in the show notes or in the link in the bio on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. You can join Mad Gabin with Madigan, the new level on Patreon, which is $5 a month. New episodes will be coming very, very shortly for that. And you can also join the $8 a month feminist faves level where you get all of these episodes early and ad free. You get some extra bonus content and you will get a sort of wrap up episode every single Monday after I release the full length episode to give a bit of a conclusion to the episode. And this week, I am going to tell the story about how Max and I were made drinks at a bar by a man who was babysat by Nancy Kerrigan. And I'm going to share some other stories that I had with people that I mentioned in the telling of the story this week, but couldn't really go off on too many tangents because clearly I had enough to get to. There's also another fantastic way that you can support the show. Please go to your Apple Podcast app if you have an iPhone and leave me a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. It really, really, truly helps me out so much. And I know that many of you like to listen on Spotify, so if you'd like to rate me there as well, I'm not going to be mad at you. All right, that's all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Just not as much as Tanya, maybe? Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.